we're going to really see a story continuing to unfold. It is the story of how God carefully and faithfully leads his people into the promised land. Now, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books, the Pentateuch, or we would call that Torah, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, written by Moses, are essentially beginning the story. And now this sixth book of Joshua is simply continuing that story. You need to know that the book of Joshua can probably be dated back to about the 15th century B.C., So we're talking approximately the year 1445 B.C. The things that took place here in the book of Joshua were written down within the same time period which they occurred. Now that's going to to fly in the face of of liberal scholarship because the liberal scholars are going to say, no, these things were written hundreds if not thousands of years afterward. Uh, There are many ideas of who has written the book of Joshua, but it seems reasonably apparent that Joshua is the one who wrote the vast majority of this book, except for the last little section, the last few verses that detail his death, in which case I believe that we're simply safe in assuming that Samuel wrote that as an addendum or uh, leading into the book of Judges, which Samuel, we believe, has written. And I know many of you are like me, kids, especially many of you kids are like me, that you love a good story. Many, we love stories. And it's really, if you want to tell me something that I'm going to remember, you need to do one of two things. You need to tell me a story or you need to sing me a song. And preferably somewhere involves alliteration and then I'll really, I'll really remember it. But tell me a story or sing me a song. And when you tell me a story, a good storyteller tells you in such a way that he can lead his audience from one point to exactly, from where they are to exactly where he wants them to be. Well, we're going to start that story. And several of us over the next couple of weeks are going to try to unfold that story before you. And we have that, that, that great and great, uh, great privilege. What you need to understand, though, is that this story, as with any good story, has a message. It has a point. It's not just a bunch of random details sort of thrown together, but it's leading you somewhere. This story, this history, the book of Joshua, has a message. And we're going to see that message today. In fact, hopefully, I'll be successful if you kind of know what that message is as we go through the book of Joshua so that you can be listening to it in the coming weeks. But something happens in the book of Joshua. Well, lots of things happen at the book of Joshua. But something happens at the end of the book of Joshua. I mean, the story is really clearly laid out. We see that there's a very clear message to the story. But we come to the end of Joshua, and it just kind of ends. The reader... The listener, the audience, is just kind of left hanging there, as it were. We we finish the book of Joshua, and we ask the question, okay, now what? What's next? Because there's not really any conclusion to the book, or at least a solution to the book of Joshua. 
We've been told when we, when we go through this book, we'll find great truths that we've been told and great truths that we come to understand. But at the end of the book, by the time we come to the end of the book, we just aren't going to be satisfied. Why? Because there seems like there's something else. There seems like there's something more. Maybe I could say it like this. When you come to the end of the book of Joshua, you're left standing going, I think there has to be someone else. I think there has to be someone more. Someone else that we're supposed to look to. And as we move through the unfolding of this story, as we move in the coming weeks through the unfolding of history, even today, we're going to find out who that is. So you pay attention to who that someone is. Now, I just want to say this before I begin. I want to commend a little book to you. I just got it last week and worked about halfway through. It has been so good for me to read this this little book. It's a book by Francis Schaeffer. Many of you know Francis Schaeffer. And it's called Joshua and the Flow of Biblical History. Absolutely a spot-on great read. If you get that book and read it as we go through this study, you will be greatly helped. Francis Schaeffer, Joshua, and the Flow of Biblical History. Now this morning, I hope that you're already in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, and our text this morning is the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. What I'm going to do today is just introduce the book to you, and I'm going to introduce it to you by giving you kind of three headings. I'm going to introduce the book to you by giving you three headings. As we move through these nine verses, we're going to learn, first of all, something about Joshua. So you can expect today to walk away here knowing at least something about Joshua. I hope you'll know some things about Joshua, but at least you'll know something. Not only do you need to know something about Joshua, you need to know something about God. So the second heading is something about God. And then finally, you need to know something about yourself, something about us. So this morning, those three headings here in the first nine verses, let me read our text this morning. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, Just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Join me in prayer. Father, now we have read the text. Let the text read us. Speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these three headings. Something about Joshua, then something about God, and then something about us. Something or some things about Joshua. As you begin this text, now you don't see it here in our English version, but it's indicated in the Hebrew. We find that the book is just continuing the narrative that closed at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We might best be able to read this, instead of just saying after the death of Moses, we might better be able to read this as and after the death of Moses. In other words, the the point is that this is just continuing the narrative. The word and just indicates that we have, uh, what we have here is a continuing of the story that was sort of dropped off at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. You see, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, if you just let your your eyes uh, glance over there, just kind of look down verses uh, verses 9 through 12 of chapter 34. At the end of Deuteronomy, you might think all hope is lost. Why? Because Moses, the one who was leading the people of Israel, remember, Israel, this nation, once was not a nation, then became a nation. Israel had gotten called out of Egypt. They, They had exited Egypt. They had been under slavery in Egypt, then they had exited out, and their leader was Moses. And Moses led them all the way. He led this perhaps more than a million people to through the wilderness all the way to the edge of the promised land, the land that God said that he would give to this nation that he would form, that he would form. But neither Moses nor the people had actually entered the promised land. And that's a problem. Why? Because God had spoken. God was really clear. God had promised. Now Moses was dead. And you think hope is lost. The question becomes, what do we think? What's going to become of the people? But more than that, you see, it's not just what will become of the people. It's what will become of the plan of God. Because as we read those first five books of the Bible, we understand that God is revealing, he's carefully, a little bit more at a time, revealing a great plan. And that plan, all the way back from Genesis 3.15, was to bring a redeemer, to bring redemption, to bring salvation. And Moses now is dead. Now what? Now what's going to happen to God's plan? Well, we read that though Moses is dead, that the Lord says to Joshua, the son of Nun, N-U-N, not the son of Nun, N-O-N-E, and not the son of Nun, N-U-N, as in sister Nun. This is the, the son of Nun. Let me tell you a couple of things that we can learn about Joshua. Let me tell you about his childhood. The son of Nun. There are some interesting notes that we can make about this man named Nun. I'm not going to take you to every place, but I'm going to take you to some places. 
First Chronicles chapter 7, there is a, a genealogy. And in that genealogy, we learn that Nun was actually the great-great-grandson of a man named Joseph through Joseph's son named Ephraim. And that's telling us something. If you're a student of the Bible, even if you're not a student of the Bible, let me tell you what it's telling us. It's telling us that this man, Nun, was actually one of the people who were in Egypt under the cruel Roman slavery. We learned that he had a son. His son's name originally, you can look this up in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16. His son's name originally was Hosea. H-O-S-H-E-A. Hosea. Son, uh, Nun had a son. <laughs> Nun had a son. I feel like I'm going to try to rap here, bust a rhyme. Nun had, I won't. Nun had a son, and his name was Hosea. His original name, Hosea, is a name that refers to the desire for salvation. In other words, again, going back, if you look at Numbers 13, 16, you'll see this. Hosea, his name was actually changed to Joshua. This man, Joshua, was actually brought up under the godly line of Joseph through Ephraim. And his name causes us to think that his family, his dad, Nun, was actually looking for, longing for salvation. Why would they be looking for and longing for salvation? Why? Because they knew God had given them a promise. They knew that God had given them a promise. They were longing for a deliverer. They were longing to be delivered out of Egypt from slavery. Well, Moses, number 13, actually took Hosea and changed his name to Joshua. From Hosea, the desire for salvation, to Joshua, the Lord is salvation. Now, I told you that this was this is all coming from the book of First Chronicles chapter 7. As you read that genealogy, something else becomes pretty clear. Though I don't though it's not stated outright, but I think it's pretty clear that Joshua was most likely the firstborn son in his family. If that's the case, that meant that under the 10th plague while the children of Israel were in Egypt under the 10th plague what did that mean for Joshua that meant that unless his family did the Passover sacrifice and took the blood of that sacrifice and applied the blood to the door lintels to the door posts that unless that blood was applied that he would be slain the angel of the Lord would come through and slay all of the firstborn there in Egypt. If not, if that blood was not applied, then Joshua would have been taken in death. Of course, the Lord delivered him. The Lord delivered his family through the blood of the sacrifice. But I have to say, I don't think that's something that you'd ever forget. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think that's something that would slip by. In other words, I don't think Joshua would ever forget the reality that he grew up in a family 
that was eagerly longing for salvation, that was eagerly longing for deliverance, and that he was in a family that was eagerly longing, listen, to see their son delivered from judgment. Kids, never despise growing up in a family with a mom and a dad who is eager for you to escape the judgment that is to come. Never. I don't think Joshua could ever forget that. His childhood. Not to mention that sense of deliverance which he experienced. But then moving on, Joshua was also one of those who came out of Egypt. So that means he witnessed God opening up the Red Sea. Remember that? And the children of Israel walking across on dry ground. But not only that, he also witnessed the judgment of God as he closed the waters of the sea over the Egyptian army and brought them to their demise. You see something about Joshua's childhood? Growing up in this family, this home, longing for salvation, family and home that takes judgment seriously. Understanding something of God's intervening supernaturally, indeed sovereignly, to work out, to bring about some deliverance. Not only do we see something about his childhood, but but we see something about his communion. Would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 33 for just a moment? Now we're going to get into kind of flipping back and forth to some different passages. And I'm, I'm going to move quickly uh, and, and just kind of skate the top of this. Hopefully you'll get the idea of what I, I'm trying to point out here. I want you to look at Exodus 33 verses 7 through 11. Now at this point, the children of Israel are out of Egypt. They're wandering in the, 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 the they're, they're going through the wilderness. And we read in Exodus 33, verse 7, this, these words. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. Let me just stop here. This is the the, the, the Shekinah glory. This is the, 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 the depiction of the presence of God. Verse 10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, here's what I want you to get. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You have this tabernacle before this. This is before the completion of the tabernacle. Rather, Moses uses this tent where he meets together with God and God speaks to him. And Joshua did not leave the tent. Again, the tent is located outside of the camp, giving the people the understanding that there is a problem between them and God following their sin there in Exodus chapter 32. 
And they, there's this problem between them and God. Moses goes out, meets God at this tent. But the point is that Joshua would not leave that tent of meeting. And what are we to make of that? We're to make of that a young man who could not get, as it were, enough of God. Enough fellowship, enough communion with God. You see, something happened earlier that gave him the indication that his life was only as important or only as successful as his communion with God. Exodus chapter 17, Moses says to Joshua, choose some men, go out and battle Amalek. Joshua does that. He goes out and battles Amalek. But as the battle goes on, the reality is that Moses is sitting up on the hill. And as long as Moses has his hands up, what happens to the battle? Joshua and the Israelites win the battle. But the moment that his hands come down, they start losing the battle. Significant of symbolizing the importance of communion with God. You can only do as God, as as you fellowship with God, as you commune with God. This was a man of, yeah, an amazing childhood, unusual communion with God. He He would not leave the presence of God. So we learn about his childhood. We learn about his communion. Let me tell you something about his courage. His courage. For that, would you go with me to Numbers chapter 13? Numbers chapter 13. I suppose that if Joshua is known for one thing, it's his courage. Moses in Joshua chapter 13. Sends 12 men out to spy the land of Canaan. To find out this promised land. One of them, look at verse 16. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Joshua is one of the 12 that goes to spy out the land of Canaan. You know, they're going to go and see what it looks like. What's this land looks like? Look like they go out and they see, oh my goodness. Look at that. It's a land, they say, it is flowing with milk and honey. It is a land that is unusual in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the desert. It is a land that is unusually blessed. I mean, there's huge grape clusters. It is amazing. But they also see that it's a a land where there are big people. People who are bigger than the Israelites. What happens? They come back, the 12 spies come back, and they give a report. Look at verse 25 of chapter 13. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. This is in the south. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us, flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev in the southern part. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. This is not good. They're they're complaining. And Caleb, verse 30, quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. 
So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it of our great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Then verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 14, all the congregation raises a loud cry, and the people weep day and night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose another leader and go back. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation and the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all, that's a sign of, 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 of extreme grief. They said to all the congregation and the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread to us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation. Said to, to stone them with stone. Let's it. That's it. They are offended. That Caleb and Joshua would say, you're abandoning the Lord, you're rebelling against the Lord, we're offended, we're going to kill you. And the only thing that kept them from killing them, is kept the crowd from killing them, is the glory of the Lord shown in the tent of meeting. Caleb and Joshua, the only two of the 12 spies who said, we should go forward. Joshua is a man of unusual courage. At the end of chapter 14, we won't go there now, but at the end of chapter 14, those 10 spies who brought a bad report were killed in a mysterious plague. Joshua stood up and said, let's move forward. This is a man, again, Deuteronomy 31.7, Deuteronomy 31.23, who is looking, who is courageous. In fact, that's really what we think about when we think about Joshua. Don't fear, be strong and courageous. We see that through the end of Deuteronomy. Whenever Moses is speaking to to Joshua, just be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Just keep on. This this is not the idea that Joshua was never afraid, but simply what? That he was trusting in someone, in something else. His courage. And then... If you move from his childhood to his communion, to his courage, and then his conviction. His conviction, we already saw a little bit of it there in Numbers 14. But particularly, I want to take you to the end of the book of Joshua. Let's go to the end of Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua, chapter 24. Verse 14. Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord. This is Joshua speaking to the assembly. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt 
and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is no way, Joshua says, there is no way that I'll serve any other God but the one true God. He was a man of conviction. And look, this wasn't something that he just chose at the end of his life. He consistently lived for the Lord. Joshua eleven fifteen. Just as the Lord commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This was a man of conviction. This was not a man who was going to turn tail and run. This was not a man who was going to go soft. Stone me, do what you will, but I will not turn. Joshua, you learned something about his childhood and something about his communion and something about his courage and something about his conviction. But let me move on quickly because it's taking a whole lot longer than I thought it would. Let me move on and tell you a little bit about God. Now, while Joshua, go back to Joshua chapter 1. We made it through the first sentence. While Joshua is the necessary human agent in the book, this book is really about God. One commentator said this, God is the hero of the book of Joshua. And that, dear friends, is where our focus must be throughout this study. I think a great summary to the book of Joshua could be found in the words of Rahab the harlot in chapter 2 verse 1 when he says, when she says, for the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. What we really learn, I mean, that was helpful to get some background about Joshua. But what this first chapter is really about is it's really about God. What do we learn about God? Just think about this and I'll go quickly. What do we learn about God? We learn, first of all, his purpose does not change. Verses 1 and 2. Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, and into the land that I am giving to them to the people of Israel. We have a reminder here that God's purpose doesn't change even though men may pass on. God is going to bring the people into the land. In fact, throughout this chapter, the, 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 uh, he, we read, I am giving, I have given numerous times. God is sovereign. Now listen, that does not absolve Joshua from his responsibility. He's going to be the human agent of the divine work. But what we're learning here is that even though men pass, God's purpose does not change. He doesn't change plans in the middle of things. He's the one who promised Abraham. And listen, he intends to keep that promise. And when we see throughout the Old Testament, what we see throughout the Old Testament is the absolute commitment of God to follow through with his plan, to follow through with his purpose. It may take years, hundreds of years, more than a thousand years, but he is working. What you need to know, brothers and sisters, is that God is committed. He's all in. God's purpose doesn't change. Okay, Moses is dead. What's next? Joshua, you're next for such a time as this. God's purposes don't change. Not only God's purposes don't change, but God's promise doesn't change. Verses 3 and 4, you see his promise there? Do you notice how God doesn't switch things up as time goes on? Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Kind of sounds a little bit like what God said to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. 
God doesn't switch things up as time goes on. It's still about a nation. It's still about a land. Now, he might expand a little bit and give us more details, more specifics like he does here. But God is going to do just what he said he will do. There's something to learn about God, and that is he doesn't change his purpose, and therefore he doesn't change his promise. What do you find throughout the first five books of the Old Testament? You find repeated the words of the covenant. And we see it repeated here in this book as well. The covenant in the book of Joshua is more from the perspective of the the human perspective and with the responsibilities that come to it. But God is keeping his plan, his promise. Not only that, purpose doesn't change, promise doesn't change. Look at verses 5 and 6. What else doesn't change? His presence. See it there? No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Just write in the, the margin of your Bible there. Hebrews 13.5. This is a reminder of the continually abiding presence of Yahweh. He promises to not leave. You ever wonder what fueled the courageous conviction of Joshua? It had to be this. That he knew God was not going to leave. It had to be that he knew that Yahweh himself was present with him. And that's the application for us in Hebrews 13. Don't long after money. Don't long after riches. Don't be greedy. Why? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, God's purpose doesn't change. God's promise doesn't change. God's presence doesn't change. But what this chapter is ultimately pointing to us about God is that his priority doesn't change. What do you mean? Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that all the law that Moses my servant has commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Listen. Listen to what God does not say to Joshua. God does not say to Joshua, now Joshua, try your best to remember all the stories that Moses passed along to you as you sat around the campfire. He he doesn't say, Try your best to recall, as best as you're humanly able, to recall the story. He doesn't say, now Joshua, remember those cute little ditties, those cute little songs that Moses taught you? Try to remember those songs. No. Why? Because when Moses died that night, the children of Israel woke up the next morning and they had a book. The book of the law. And liberal, liberal scholars want to give you the idea that, that, that uh, uh, Judaism and that Christianity is built simply on a bunch of concocted stories and songs that were sung around a campfire, not on propositional truth written down. They had a book, the book of the law. That Moses wrote. And Joshua also wrote these things down. As the Israelites, Francis Schaeffer said this, as the Israelites stood ready to enter the land, God's main emphasis was upon 
the book. And listen, when Joshua died, and that no longer became the objective standard for the people of Israel, what is the story of the book of Judges? And the people, what? Did what was right in their own eyes. When you remove the book, when you remove the authority, you remove, every man does what is right in his own eyes. He says the word was to be, is to be in your mouth, it's to be on your mind. It's to be in your manner of living. And if you look through this book, chapter 8, chapter 11 specifically, Joshua had a book and all he had to do was be faithful. Now, were there special interventions for Joshua? Of course there were special interventions. But they were the exception. That's why we call them special interventions. The rule was go by the book. And what did Moses tell the people in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 12 and Deuteronomy chapter 13? He said, if anyone speaks to you outside of the parameters of this book, what is to be the measure of the prophecy? The measure of the prophecy, if somebody else gives you, is not does it come true. The measure of the prophecy, the standard for measuring the prophecy is, is it in line with the book? If it's not, you turn away from it. You turn away from it. And that's what we learn about God. God has a priority. You have exalted above all things your name, Psalm 138.2, and your word. What is the priority of God? The priority of God is today what it has always been, the exaltation of his word. And I can remind you, church, that's why we exist. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. We lift high the truth. That's what it's all about. So God. His purposes don't change. Promise doesn't change. His presence doesn't change. And his priority, it just keeps going with the book. Joshua is like a hinge book. It's sort of like the Old Testament equivalent to the book of Acts. All right? It's a hinge book. But we see things that are remaining the same. Uh, Schaefer calls them, uh, we see continuity in the book of Joshua. Well, let me finish. We learned something about Joshua and something about God. Let me tell you something about us. Something about us. First of all, there are some truths that we need to face this morning. There's some truths that we need to face. And I, I think the truths that we can face can just be revisited. We can just look back on what we've learned about God. You need to face the truth today that God is not changing anything about himself. And God will not change anything. God is not going to change anything about himself. His priority today is the same as his priority back in 1445 BC, and that's the exaltation of his name, the exaltation of his word. Not going to change that. There's some truths we need to face. Not only that, there are some examples we ought to follow, right? I mean, just think about Joshua, how he, he enjoyed that communion with God, and how he loved to, to be in the presence of God, and how that no doubt led him to some of his courageous conviction. We need some men and women today who are willing to stand on the truth revealed by God in his word and on nothing else. No matter if people pick up stones to throw. No matter that people want to despise you and 
forsake. No matter if you're two standing against ten. Or two standing against an entire generation. There needs to be conviction and courage today in this day and age. There are some examples for us to follow. And we'll see that as we go throughout the book of Joshua. Some truths that we need to, to face and examples that we need to follow. There's some rest that we need to find. Remember I told you that you get to the book of Joshua, the end of the book of Joshua, and you just, you don't feel satisfied. You feel like there's something else. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, he said this, For if Joshua had given them rest permanently, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There is a rest we need to find. You get to the end of the book, book of Joshua and you think, there's something more. There's someone more. And who is that? The someone more is God's great Sabbath. He has a name. His name is Jesus. He's the one in whom you can find rest, for whom it's not about you earning anything by your work of righteousness, but who by trusting him in simple belief guarantees you forgiveness of sin and a home in heaven forever. What is a lesson for us in the book of Joshua? The lesson, and we're going to see this throughout. There's a rest to find. We, it's, it's pointing us to, to something else. It's pointing us to someone else. And throughout the book, we're going to see that someone else. Sometimes it's going to be really, really bold and really clear. You get to Joshua chapter 6, and you're going to see him right there, the commander of the Lord's army. But there's someone. This book is driving us. It's driving you, my friend, to the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. This is, there's something about you right here. There are lessons to face, truths to face. There's an example to follow. There's a rest to find. And there is a judgment to flee. One of the things that we're going to be confronted with in the book of Joshua is the unremitting judgment of God where entire nations are brought down and brought to death. And for some of you, you're going to have a real problem with that. How could it be that these nations are being slain? But in, the, in Joshua chapter 2, we have an indication of what's going on. Joshua chapter 2, you have Rahab the harlot. She's there in Jericho. And she says, you know what? Everybody around here has heard what God is doing. Everybody around here knows that the Lord is God. The Lord your God is God. And there's none greater. Everybody knows it. And yet, what do we see with with nation after nation, city-state after city-state in the land of Canaan, we see even though they know, with a few exceptions, Rahab and the Gibeonites are two of them, with a few exceptions, we see continual, hard-hearted disobedience, even though they know that the Lord is God. And the reality is that you're here today and you know that there is a God in heaven. You know that the Lord is 
God. And you know that there is a judgment to flee. You know intuitively that your sin deserves judgment. That's why you, you've just, you know that you have to, you, you try to hide sin. You know intuitively to try to hide sin. Isn't that what kids do? Is, nobody had to teach them. Nobody had to teach them to hide the cookie behind their back when you come walking in. You didn't have to say, now kids, let me tell you something. I won't teach you about lying. Here's what you got to do. They just know it. And you know it as well. You intuitively know that sin is wrong. And you want to hide it. You want to do it at night. You want to do it at dark. You want to do it under the cover of darkness so people don't see you. There's a sense of shame, right? At least if your conscience isn't steered. You know that God exists and you know that there is a judgment to come. And what this book reminds us is that there is a judgment to flee. There's a judgment to flee. And the reality is that that judgment is the wrath of God. The beauty is that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, took the wrath of God in your place. He suffered it in your place. So that if you'll trust him, there is no condemnation. If you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding your sin, I I am a sinner. Understanding that Jesus, when he died on the cross, took your place, that he suffered and bled and died and was buried, and three days later he rose again, showing that he is who he says he is. You trust him? You're able to flee the judgment. The judgment that is to come. Just like Joshua experienced when he was a child in his dad's house back in Egypt. When they brought that Passover lamb. And I imagine Joshua saying, Dad, what's the lamb for? Well, son, it's like this. There's a terrible night coming. The angel of death will go through our camp. And unless he sees the blood on the doorpost, he'll bring death to our house. He'll bring death to you. But when he sees the blood, I will pass. I will pass over you. My question for you is, friends, on that great and final day, when he comes, will he see the blood? Will he count the blood of Jesus Christ for you as sufficient to cover your sins? Or will you have to give an account? Will you stand on your own and face the eternal judgment of the eternally burning wrath of God? Someone said it like this. Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, that you'd be with God in heaven? Say so you stand before God and He says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, God, I've, I've tried my best and I was a good person. And God says, come on. We both know that's not true. You know your sin as well as I know your sin. And you look down in shame, hanging your head. The only answer in that final day is the answer, Jesus. 
God, I believe that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's seated there at your right hand, he died in my place, a wicked sinner. I didn't deserve it, yet he, told, he, he did it. And my mom and dad told me, my pastor told me, that church told me, I read it in the book. I read how he was the one who suffered and bled and died in my place. And that if I just trust him, I read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but everlasting life. I believed that. I read that and I believed it, God. And I, put my, I repented of my sin. I put my faith and trust in him. It's the only answer. The question is, what would your answer be? You get to the end of the book of Joshua, and you're left hanging. You want something else. You want someone more. Jesus is that someone. Don't come to the end of your life and be found wanting. Believe him today. Let's pray. So Lord, now we humble ourselves before you as the one true God, the King of kings, Lord of lords. None like you, perfect, pure, holy, righteous, and just. We've just been able to walk through this book, these, these few verses so quickly. There's so much more. Write the truth, your eternal truth on our hearts, on every heart here, Lord. And I pray particularly for those who are in the throes now of deciding whether or not they will trust Jesus Christ as their eternal Lord and Savior. I pray that you would grant them the gift of faith, repent of their sin, and just in simple faith, reach out and trust Christ. Do that now for your own eternal glory. Raise up men and women of courageous conviction in our midst to stand in these days. We pray that you'll help us to trust you in Jesus' name. And together all God's people said,